Good morning. I'm going to be reading from John 1, verses 29 through 42. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he, he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have, found, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus took it, looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Thank you, Brad. It's a long one. <laughs> it is a long one. If you have your Bible, keep what Brad read in mind and turn to Psalm 40. If you remember during the season of Advent, we had a guest, Emily, who um, preached from a psalm. And I have to tell you, um, psalms aren't easy for preachers it's easier to take a text that is what we would call written in either prose or some kind of teaching and say here you go poetry's tough Hebrew poetry particularly um, but um, we're going to try Psalm 40 this morning okay and what I need you to think about is is the way we read Hebrew poetry is a lot like listening to songs because those, what we have in the Psalms, are actually songs that Israel learned to sing. And songs are emotionally evocative that generally result from an experience someone has had and they've decided to put pen to paper and then those words to music, melodies and harmonies. And if you keep that in mind, and we're thinking of, of what this text does, it is a work of art that, that carries some weight as it tells us something about what God does. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that we are not like those other people. People like those whose actions landed them in captivity, driven from their homes, from their land. People like those with great wealth, but whose lives reveal that money and power do not buy their own flourishing. People like those driven from the temple by the religious powerful and into the Jordan Valley, 
We are glad we do not need a John the Baptist these days. Our motto, the banner of our day, in case you've missed it, Lord, is that we'll take it from here. But Lord, today we admit that we are glad you can see what is real about us through our bravado, our sense of having it all together. We battle our own unique captivities and need to hear the good news again that one has come to set captives free that is inclined toward us and that lifts us up out of our captivity to be loved, forgiven, and yours. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, the one who raises us up and sets our feet on solid ground. And all God's people say. Patty and I were running an errand recently. We were traveling a route that we take, have taken off, and I don't know how many times we've driven down this particular road. And as is custom, when you are driving at a familiar place, you kind of look around again, and, and you see things that you expect, you're, you're familiar with them, and then all of a sudden, maybe it has happened to you, you see something you didn't notice before. Now, it's not that the thing you saw has not been there before, it's just you didn't notice it before. It's not like a shiny new boat or a, a fifth wheel or a new car. It's something that clearly has been there a while. You just missed it in your uh, habits and patterns of driving the same routes you see. The same things. And then, for some reason, maybe the way the light shines, maybe you paused for a moment, maybe you lingered as you looked over to your left or to your right, and there it was. This happens. Does that happen to you? It happened to me just recently, and what I noticed, what I noticed behind a house has been there a long, long time. It was an outhouse. I thought to myself, man, I am so glad we live in a different day. Huh? I mean, after all, we all have a need to discard our waste. It's just nice we can do it inside. Right? The logic of this sort of thing happens to function like this. We're advanced people. We've made great progress. We are smarter, wiser, more ingenious than any group who's ever lived. And here's how we get there. We see something like what I saw, and we say, whew, we are so much better off today. And we emphasize this on now. We are better off now than anyone has ever been. And the outhouse proves it. And then once we're there, we kind of shift a little bit. We, we, we shift the emphasis on the sentence and we say, we are so much better today. We're so much better today. And if you hear how you inflect the strength of a particular word, you can now see the shift in the emphasis. Man, we are so much better today. We are so much better today. And we finally conclude, we are better. You see how that works? We have an experience, uh, 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 we, we uh, have an event, and, and, and we're reminded of what sort of progress we've made. And it doesn't take us long to live in 20, 
23 and think, man, we are better than anyone who's really ever lived. We have it better. We're better. In his newest book, Low Anthropology, subtitled The Unlikely a Key to a Gracious View of Others and in parentheses Yourself, a young friend, uh, David Zoll, uh, relays the story of Anya. Her story is told in a memoir, My Dead Parents. Now, real quickly, low anthropology is David's way of um, describing what Paul writes to, for instance, Christians in both Philippi and in Romans. It goes something like this. Don't think of yourself more highly than you should. So for for David, that's a low anthropology. Or another way to say it is, we should probably have the correct assessment of ourselves. We are better off today, maybe, but we aren't necessarily better than those who lived hundreds or a thousand years before us. So he he gives the context of Anya's story, and so he relays it, and here's what he relays. In this way, a low anthropology, a, a proper assessment of ourselves, breaks apart the boxes we place on one another in, boxes, boxes that can become jail cells. In the memoir, My Dead Parents, Anya Yerkeshin gives a stunning example of how this plays out. Anya's father was killed in a car accident when she was 16, and her mother died of alcoholism when Anya was 32. Her initial response to their deaths, she confesses, was relief. She had experienced her father as cold and mean, and her mother as ineffectual and aloof. Their disdain and contempt for each other was on display throughout her life. She blamed her low self-esteem and her anxiety on them. Would knowing something about the lyricist, the one who wrote Psalm 40, make any difference in how we receive the song? I mean, if we knew the backstory. Uh, from time to time, for instance, uh, Rusty has, over the course of time, uh, reminded us some of the backstory of some of the old hymns. In fact, there is a book published. It's called A Companion to the Hymnal. And it, it, it's, it's a book that goes with the, the old hymnals. You remember those, right? And, and in it, you could look up a story, um, How Great Thou Art, or, or, or another song, and you can look into this companion, and you can find out what was behind the song. What prompted the lyrics? What, were, what was the event that stirred the heart and mind of the composer to say, these are the words I want to set to music to remind people of this reality of being in God's care or God's love. I'm asking, what would it mean, or would it mean anything, if you or I knew who was the writer behind the song? Would their experiences, as little or much as we might have about them, would it change how we would receive the song? I happen to think it might. 
I happen to think that if it's a song that we didn't know anything about, and then we kind of found ourselves kind of curious about what's the backstory, then we would, we, we might receive that song a, a little bit better. It's thinking on my feet, which is not as easy to do as it once was. But I, I remember someone suggesting a, an artist a year or two ago who, who had this compilation of, of songs. I, I believe the group was The Killers. And, and the, yeah, I know, I know, it's, that's, that's the group's name. Anyway, I, I believe it was that group. And they had the lead uh, singer, the one who wrote the lyrics. And, and he, they had an interview and he kind of would tell the backstory of some of the songs. And, and it, it's what made the songs pretty powerful, pretty, pretty uh, endearing, where, where we could say, I could sing that song. I've had that experience. I know what that's like. That's what helps when we know a little bit more than just did the song make the top 40. What's the song doing? What's the song about. So here we have, we have this song and, and it's opening verses by the time I believe you get to verse number three, you hear many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Now, it, there's a little doubt, there's little doubt that you and I have either seen or ourselves experienced something to which someone would look at and say, Man, I hope that never happens to me. Or we'll have a conversation with someone, they're getting to know us, and we might say, I sure hope that never happens to you. We, we've all had a variety of experiences that stir the responses from those who see and have been involved with us in those things that happen, such that we could say with confidence that many see and fear. But we're not sure about how those experiences often connect with putting our trust in the Lord. But nonetheless, that's the parallelism in, in chapter 40. You, you get these lines where one says something about the next, or, or one informs the next, or one amplifies the next. That's just the way Hebrew poetry works. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So what we have is we have songs, we have someone who wrote them, and we're wondering, okay, what are these experiences that people see and fear and put their trust in the Lord? And maybe your imagination is working. Maybe you're thinking back on your own life and you're thinking, well, I remember those things happening and all I had left was to put my trust in the Lord. Maybe. Sure, there have been times like that. Would, would it make more sense if we knew particularly this song, who was behind this song that got included in the sacred text? Or would, we, or would we want to know what was the event? Not the who, but what? Not, not who's writing this song, but, but what happened? I mean, we are a rubbernecking culture. Something bad happens and we turn to look and we want to know everything about it. You know why Google's so popular, right? Because you hear something happened and what do you do? You Google it. You want to find out what are the details. I was talking to uh, Gerald this morning, and we were talking about the football game that happened uh, last night, the, uh, the Chargers and the Jaguars. And if you went to sleep at halftime, you woke up to find out that the Jaguars won. 
Well, you have to go find out what happened. How did that happen? There was no way that game was going to go that way. See, we want to know what what happened. What was the event? So sometimes we want to know who's behind the story, but sometimes we want to know what's the event that happened that prompted this. What is it that could be described as a desolate pit or a miry bog or a slimy pit? What's the event? What's the event that ensnared, entrapped, that captured, held captive the one who's doing the writing? Now, if you happen to have your Bible... It's an old preacher trick. (laughs) You might find a heading that is uh, supplied most often by either uh, those who pass the uh, written text along or um, those who've kind of worked with the text in an academic sort of way to try to identify who wrote this particular song. We tend to think David wrote all of them, but there were a lot of musicians in Israel So David wrote some songs and Asaph wrote some songs, but at the heading at the top, right under Psalm 40, you might read, of David, a psalm. And so now you know the who, who's possibly, potentially, who do do scholars think is behind this song? And immediately you go, well, like many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And we start thinking, well, well, okay, let's see, David. What, what, what event in David's life spurred sort of that sort of assessment? Where David felt like whatever was going on was like a desolate pit or a miry bog or a slimy pit? What was happening? What were those events? And so we kind of click off our, quickly in our memories. Well, let's see. Was it, uh, was it when he was a young shepherd boy tending his father's sheep and out of the out of the, the woods came a, a bear or a lion to, to tempt their fate by taking and feeding on the sheep? Did he feel threatened by what he might face, these predatorial adversaries? Is, is it, what, what, did he feel for a moment that he might be captive into fear and he, he couldn't do anything? And then all of a sudden God so inspired him and he, he protected the sheep and defeated the animals? Was, was that it? Or, 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 or was it as a young musician boy who, who had been requisitioned to play his harp for the king, who then became the subject of the, ting, the king's air, uh, sword? No, spear. Get it right. Spear? and army being chased out on the run on the lamb hiding in caves and behind rocks hoping that he would one day find favor again with the king was that when he felt like he was in a desperate pit in a miry bog that he couldn't escape or 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 was it as he was a, a little bit more of an adult and he had a he had a glimpse of a, a, a whim of remorse thinking, how am I going to assuage this shame and this guilt for what I did to Uriah and to Bathsheba? Maybe it was not something that was coming to him. Maybe it was something he did. What is it that he has done? And and maybe it was the, the moment where maybe he didn't feel a glimpse until it was Nathan who looked at him, told him a parable, got him all riled up and infuriated until Nathan said, you are the man. And now he felt seen. What he thought he had hidden, 
in the death of Uriah and his exploit of Bathsheba. Maybe he now, I've been seen. And now that I'm seen for who I am and for what I've done, maybe it was as an older father whose children were out of control, who had in had sibling rivalries, fights, and terrible events that happened till finally at the near end of his life, his own son is chasing him away from the palace. And he feels like there's no escaping the consequences of poor fatherhood. He's in a desolate pit. He's in a miry bog. Do you know? I don't have any idea. And I think that's the point. I mean, how many times have you um, heard the song, It Is Well With My Soul? And before you do anything, you hear, you, you call to mind the backstory. And now the story is locked in about a man who lost who? His family. So when you sing it as well, it, it now narrows the scope of the loss. If, if you sing it as well with my soul, it better be about losing someone in your family because that's what learning a particular backstory does. I'm not saying that's the point. I'm just saying when we so narrowly define an event then we think the salve that was provided by the good news of the song is only for those sorts of incidents. So maybe it's good that we don't know for sure what event it was that David faced. That way, that way, whatever event we find ourselves in, whether it's the consequences of things that come to us or things that we do, when we find ourselves in a desolate pit, in a miry bog, now the song has a meaning to us that transcends just one thing. It can be many things. It can be a song for all time. It's interesting that when you 2 did this song in 1985, actually we're singing it in 1983, when they were performing this, uh, the song 40, which is a reference to Psalm 40, they use the opening lines and then they supply this line. How long will we sing this song? If the events that stirred the songwriter's heart can be applied to whatever instance we come to that we feel we're in a desolate pit or a miry bog, then we'll sing this song often, all the time. You see, those who study those particular modern lyrics try to find out, well, why did they not go on and include more of Psalm 40? Well, because, because maybe Bono understood that the human experience is fraught with all kinds of perils, and we'll be singing this song until such a time as everything is set right. Everything is set right. If it isn't enough to capture your attention, got to make this fast. If it, if it isn't enough to, as much to capture your attention, Isaiah uh, was a reading. Isaiah 49 was a reading for today. And, and if you can think about the message that came to um, Israel in captivity... The Isaiah of the exile promised that a servant was coming. Well, we could take apart Isaiah 49 and, and have another sermon, and we'd have to be here till 
a shower and nobody wants to be here that long listening to a sermon, right? Can I get an amen out of that? Right, right. But, but if what we understand is going on is Israel finds themselves subject to one of the kind of events that the songwriter describes. That by virtue of things they had done and been done to them, they found themselves resisting the mission of God, the vision of God for them, and now they're in captivity. They are having one of those moments. They're having one of those events. They are in a desolate pit called the Babylonian captivity. And when Isaiah makes references, said God's going to call up a servant to bring Jacob back. It's a call back all the way to Israel's captivity in Egypt. So if there's anything to tie these passages together is to say that there are events that come to us, there are events that we participate in that actually create our own captivity. And none of us, none of us escape that. None of us escape that in life. There's always some event that comes to us that we didn't ask for. There are always events that we participate in that leave us captive to something. And our only recourse really is to go, man, we're better off today. We're better today and try to convince ourselves we are better. We're better than King David, better than the servant Israel that they were not. But there's an interesting thing about what happens when we get to the passage Brad read. This promise that God was going to do a thing for Israel, despite all the events that left them in captivity, of which King David sung about, where he finds himself, by virtue of these experiences, always looking up, trying to find his way out, and can't. Israel, Israel hears the promise that they're supposed to be the servant that serves uh, the nations. Then we hear, we hear John the baptizer, sees Jesus and says to those who are his disciples, that is, are following John, behold the lamb. Behold the lamb. And, and those who were good Jews, that is, those who had grown up hearing the Torah and, and the prophets who had been taught and listened well, they immediately likely said, This is the servant for whom we've been looking. This is the one that Isaiah wrote about. Because the irony is that if we don't know all the events that David might be referring to in Psalm 40, no one has been yet able to identify the servant of Isaiah 49. That critics have looked high and low, they've thumbed through history, they've looked through text. Who was the servant Isaiah was talking about? finally one writer I read said they've just given up and if the point is that we don't need to know the particular events that David was involved in then we don't really need to know particularly who the historical figure might be because it may be many figures I mean after all we have the period of the judges and if the judges prove anything God raised up servants to free the captive Israelites Captive to the the Philistines over and over again, captive to others. So there's this long history of God going to raise up a servant who takes care of Israel. And when John says, behold the lamb, 
those who had ears to hear said, whoa, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the servant, the one who would bring all people, not just Israel, back to God. Remember, remember the, the scriptures tell us that the earth is the Lord, Lord's and everything in it. The passage we read from Colossians chapter 1 is an emphasis on God's reconciliation of all things, whether above or below or on the earth. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Another song important to Israel. Well, what, what do we say? What are we saying? We're saying that all everyone we run into, including ourselves, at some point along the way, maybe more often than not than others, maybe less often, but all of us find ourselves captive to a thing. We find ourselves like David, saying, "Here I am in a desolate pit, in a miry bog." And if we want to stop there and say, "Okay, well, that's your condition." We're fatalists, determinists. These things were bound to happen. You're bound to face them. Too bad, so sad. But the emphasis of the song is not on David nor the particular events. The emphasis in the song is on what God did. What does God do? So in the song, if you catch the song, it's, it's God, uh, I waited and waited. That, that's literally how that verse is translated. We supply, I waited patiently. I mean, I, I want you to, you to hear me carefully. Waiting patiently can sound like I was in the waiting room waiting on the doctor to see me, which can take quite a while, right? It can. I waited patiently can be, I went to the restaurant and they burned my first order, so they had to do it, and so I'm waiting patiently on my food. But, but the way that the Hebrew works is, is there, there are two words, I'm waiting, waiting. I'm waiting while I'm waiting. In other words, the way that that sentence is structured, it's as much emphasis you can give to the fact that the one in the pit was waiting. What else do you do when you're in a pit? Well, if you're in a miry bog and you can't move, what else are you going to do but wait? In other words, it's an expression of desperation. I can't get out. I waited, waited. And if you can understand the intensity of that description, then you have to grasp that the way poetry works is when it says, he inclined to me. Listen, how often do you say that? I called my doctor and he inclined to me. I understand what's being said, but the intensity is missing. Inclined can carry the idea that, well, you know, he... He had a free moment, and he took my call, you know, or uh, what, what, inclination can sound timid. <clears throat> the strength and weight of the word <clears throat> has to equal the intensity of the first line. So the kind of inclination that God took when he sees us in great need is the same intensity we have when we waited, waited. In other words, with the same interest we have of someone rescuing us, God has the interest in doing the rescuing. There isn't a question. There isn't a doubt. If you waited, waited, God is inclining. That is, God is giving the same intense interest in you, in us. 
when Anya went on about her story, the story of her parents, the events that left her in her own desolate pit, in her miry bog. David goes on to continue the story. Picking up where we left off, their disdain and contempt for each other was on display throughout her life, and she blamed her anxiety and low self-esteem on them. Anya was taken aback when, while cleaning out her mother's house, she came across a box of passionate love letters the two had exchanged. Her father had written, Whenever I leave you, there is an emptiness inside me, a true aching of the heart. Her mother had responded, Our love is wondrous. It has a life almost of its own. The vulnerability shocked Anya. Who were these people? She made it her mission to find out, first by visiting Pennsylvania, uh, the Pennsylvania neighborhood where her mother grew up. She discovered that her mother's childhood had been heartbreaking, filled with abandonment and abuse. Out of Anya's heart began to trickle compassion for the girl and woman who had been the mother she hadn't known. She then flew to her father's ancestral home in Ukraine. Much to her surprise, she discovered that he was regarded as something of a hero. After the collapse of the USSR, he had returned early and often to help rebuild the devastated town. What she had thought of as her father's absenteeism turned out to be a devotion to those he had left behind. She simply hadn't known. Moreover, before she was born, her parents lost an infant son to pneumonia, which etched further pain into the marriage. They did not tell her of his existence until she was ten, Anya writes, devastating as it was. This information was a gift, shining a light into the murky corners of my childhood. My father policed my behavior so intensely, not because he was a dictator, but because he was terrified of losing another child. His anger was misplaced grief. My mother wasn't weak. She had to be unimaginably strong to survive her childhood, lose her parents, son and husband. I was the product of of complicated people who'd done the best they could. Today, I am proud to be their daughter, a person who replaced pity with compassion. The compassion opened the door to the emotional prison where I'd long kept my parents, and in turn, it freed me. David concludes, Anya's case is not everyone's. Sometimes the truth turns out to be uglier than we presumed, not nicer. Sometimes it is inconclusive. Either way, we write others off at our own peril, even when we feel we have every reason to, even when we have been forced to bear the brunt of their shortcomings. The point of David's song? Everyone, everyone has experienced a desolate pit for one reason or another. Everyone has been in a miry bog for one reason or another. And we're all looking up. And in our waiting, waiting, God is giving himself to us to say, I love you. 
I forgive you your mine. Why forgiveness? Well, because in our self-defense, we often do things we don't realize are harmful to ourselves and others. So to hear the good news that he inclined to me, he really gave his intention to me, and not just took an observable action, but did something. He drew me up, the text says, and he set my feet on a rock, on solid ground. We all not only experience the consequence of events, ours or not, that leave us in a desolate pit, and we all have the opportunity to make an appeal in our waiting, waiting for the one who's able to lift us up. Because if one thing David does in the song is remind us we didn't get ourselves out of the pit. Because most often, our pattern, we get ourselves out of the pit only to get in another pit. And so David concludes by saying, many will see and hear and put their trust in the Lord. Why does that matter? Well, Maybe the reason it's important to know who wrote this song is because if it can happen to kings, it can happen to us. If we think we're immune to falling into a desolate pit or into a miry bog, we are fooling ourselves. And if we think there's no hope, no one to love us, to care for us, we've made an equally different mistake the good news the good news john says behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world those things that happen to us and those things we do so that in the coming of jesus in the gift of jesus god says to us i love you i forgive you you're mine and that is the song we sing that everyone needs to hear